What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. Welcome back. Thanks for having me back. So this is such a special moment because Catherine was the first guest on Lit Up. How many years ago was it that? It would have been 2014, I guess. Or maybe we could have, yeah, it would have been 2014 or 15, right? Yeah, because it was just talk about nobody is ever missing. Yeah, yeah, it was just that. It was my first book. It was your first episode. It was my first book. Now here we are. Does that mean eight years? I think so, yeah. <laughs> That's terrifying. But also I was thinking, you know, as I look at your biography, I'm like, oh my gosh, Catherine has written four books in this time. And I was, you know, you make it all about yourself. I was like, what have I done with my whole <laughs> life? It's led us back to here, yeah, so I'm yeah. very pleased. Uh, we're here to talk about your most recent novel, Biography of X. And I was telling you as we were pouring coffee that I felt like as we read it, we feel like we're in such adept hands. I think there's something kind of, because I use so many sources and so many like other people and other perspectives, and I was reading a lot of like proper biographies at the time, I think there's something kind of like vampiric where you like kind of soak up, like, like I think you read enough biographies, you do start to feel like life is short and there is, I don't know, you kind of can step into like a perspective that's a little bit outside of time or something. I think It is so. very different than like the rest of the books too. Very different. And we'll get into all this source material that I want to ask how you created these images that are throughout the book and, you know, FBI files, you know, photos from files. There's so much. But you were telling me about why you had to reschedule. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's important to know what you'll be doing a couple of hours from now. I mean, it's funny because like there's so much in the book about the music industry and like art world stuff. And I think I've never really felt like a person that does much in those realms. I feel like I'm very much like in the 
book and publishing like that those are my circles but my friend john ray has a book coming out this year called gone to the wolves that's a lot about metal bands and like it's kind of it's said i think in the 80s and 90s i guess it comes into the 21st century but he's recording like a metal song and he's having some friends come and like scream on the track so i didn't want to come here like straight after screaming because i'm not a professional screamer and i thought maybe i would have messed up my voice or something and so yeah so we had to do this in the morning instead of the afternoon (laughs) Because I've got a noon date to scream. That yeah. is amazing. <laughs> Do you listen to metal music? No, no, I have no. I, I think that's like maybe the one genre I'm like don't know anything about. I mean, I know a little bit of like re- after reading his book, but yeah, no. It sounds like a great beginning for another novel. <laughs> like turning <laughs> like, up to scream. Like, what if I at 37 decided to just like quit everything and like be like, you know, I found my passion is screaming if in a metal band or whatever. I have no idea what it's going to be like. We're like, it's a proper recording studio, but that's all I know. Hey, well, tell us a little about X, but also where she came from. I feel from the cover, I was thinking of Patti Smith so much, but it feels like this woman, A, you've put her in American history in the world, interacting with all these well-known figures that we know, like David Bowie and Kathy Acker. So how did you conjure her up and why was it important for her to interact with these other people? Okay. Well, I really like biographies and I really wanted to write like a proper biography, but I was encouraged away from doing that because the subject that I had picked was apparently like not an appropriate subject or like whatever. I had this teacher that was basically, this is not a good idea. Don't do it. But I still wanted to do it. But then I really like biographies and like nonfiction books that are like a little contaminated. Like there's that, I use a lot of Chris Krause's biography of Kathy Acker. That was like something I read like early in the process. And I loved how in some ways Chris Krause is exactly the right person to write a biography of Kathy Acker. Like she had like kind of a front row seat to like that whole scene and she knew her and she knew like just she was very close to her in some ways but in some ways that makes you absolutely the wrong person to write a biography of somebody and I was thinking like what could be a, like you know the Krauss biography is actually still a biography even though she said it's like maybe it's not a biography it's still pretty much a proper biography but I was thinking like what would be like the worst person to write a biography of somebody and then I thought well like obviously they're like x in some way um, but usually when somebody's when we're writing a biography of someone, they're dead. And so well, then like a widow or a widower. But then I didn't want to have like a man writing a biography of a woman or a woman writing a biography of man. So then I was like, well, I want it to be two women. But then if I said it in the 20th century, this was all just like kind of happening in my I feel like this is like one afternoon of being like, I want to write a biography. But how do I like where's the like entry point? So I wanted it to be two women. But then I didn't want the subject to be like how hard it was to like be taken seriously as a lesbian couple or something in like in the 20th century or I didn't want like I didn't want them to have to explain themselves on that front at all and so then I was like well what would be different I think there was like maybe this was a separate idea something I had been thinking about was I'd been reading about Emma Goldman the like anarchist and like political activist from like turn of the century and I've been wishing that she had had more of a life like her her rallies like I think I'm going to get the dates wrong. I'm like definitely not a historian. I'm very like sloppy about my sources, which is why this is a fictional biography. But like her rallies were really well attended in like, I think like the teens and the twenties. I mean, like her speeches and things like this and her ideas were really like traveling in American politics in a big way. She was taken very seriously. She was very radical. She was an anarchist. And 
I was just thinking, I wish that her imprint on American political, like the kind of birth of our like political ideologies had lasted a little longer (laughs) or like gone a little farther. So then I was like, well, why didn't it? And I was sort of looking at like late 19th century politics in America and and what was happening. Why do we have the ideas that we have in in this country? And I pinpointed, this is maybe like very specific. You're like, no, I love this. (laughs) It's like hard to talk about why X is the way that she is without Mm -hmm. like, I kind of backed myself into a corner where she kind of, and I think I do this with books in general. It's like, there's a premise, there's some kind of idea that I want to execute, but then I end up setting up like a million little hurdles or sort of like walls around the premise so that then sort of accomplishing the book feels like an obstacle course that I have to just go through. And this one was, I think, very intricate for me. But anyway, there was this thing in Chicago in 1888 called the Haymarket Affair, which essentially was a huge riot, like a really violent clash between union organizers and and like a union rally and the cops. And basically the cops incited violence. It's been like documented that like they intentionally instigated violence at that rally. And I think several people died in order to make it look like the worker unions were like themselves. Yes, exactly. And and too radical and all these things when actually it was a peaceful demonstration. And this was a big turning point. Like at that time, it was covered. It was national news. And I think it it kind of turned public opinion away from workers' rights. And it was it was a part of a, like kind of a shifting. This is I read it in, in some book a long time ago. And so all my details are probably messed up. And there's probably historians out there just like pulling their hair out. But like, forgive me, I'm interested, but I'm not very exact. But anyway, I just thought, well, like, what if that hadn't been violent? And what if, like, I don't think any of this is actually in the book. But I thought, what if that what if that riot hadn't been violent and, like, actually there was – we had a kind of truly left left in this country, you know, from the beginning? And then I thought, well, you sort of think through it and you think, well, the country's huge and there's basically, there's a lot of different perspectives, like, even from, you know, the turn of the, turn of the century into the 20th century. And – I thought, well, probably this would have like precipitated like a divide. And I was living for a little while. I lived in Berlin and I was, I had, mm-hmm. I didn't know anything about like East and West Berlin history and like all the Cold War politics and the way that that country worked or didn't work in that time. And also, I think just because of the existence of the wall, I was thinking a lot about North and South Korea and like that was something that was really interesting to me at the time. And so I thought, well, maybe something like that could have happened here. And we would have just taken it for granted, you know, by now we've been like, oh, right, there's a wall around the South. So this was basically, this is how how much I, I felt like I had to reimagine America in order for basically two women to be married and for it not to be a big deal in the 70s, you know, or in the 80s. Like, I had this young friend, young sort of new friend who's trans, and she was like, she's trying to make decisions about her her name. And she told me the other day, she was like, I just don't want to like, I don't want like, it's not a political choice to me. She's like, I'm just trying to figure out what to call myself, but it feels like everything is so loaded and it's like, you're kind of burdened with like societal expectation and these things that are really like fundamental and small to you. You know, I feel like I just wanted like queer people to exist in my imagined world without having to like qualify being queer or explain it or anything like that. So I had, to, there is, I had to rewrite American history in order to, like, be able to clearly imagine that, just that basic setting of, like, that. that's it. Isn't that just the most <laughs> incredible example of the imagination, though? And 
your imagination that in order to have these two women have this kind of relationship Mm -hmm. and it not be this major political act, you did have to unravel history and put it back together again. But the history you reimagine felt so possible for those reasons you cited. It was really based on a lot of the the reading I was doing about North and South Korea and like East and West Berlin. It doesn't really – I don't think that America is special. Like we could have easily been – Definitely. A completely different country, you know. What I loved about – the book starts out in such a personal place. We have – I just actually, as a side note, something you said then about having an ex mm-hmm. write a biography mm-hmm. of someone else and then obviously the title. I mean, I'm the dummy who's just being like, ding, ding, ding. The title, <laughs> Biography of X. Yeah, yeah. It's about this woman who calls herself X. But the writer of the biography and, you know, the person whose mind we're inside of throughout this is her ex. yeah. And or her widow, depending on how her you widow. see it. I think she considers herself more the ex because she feels like she was abandoned. Like part of her research sort of uncovers aspects of their relationship that weren't exactly what they seemed to be during the time that they were together. Yeah. It also made me think that we all will have an experience where we have always thought we've known someone better Mm. than we have. Mm. And your book is almost like the most extreme version of that. But as I was reading it, I thought, oh, you know, this person I love and I'm I'm with has, of course, this whole other inner life and past that we can never penetrate. And do you want to? And in this case, our widow is, is compelled in that way. How did you feel when you were in her shoes or in her brain? Just that propulsion to move towards something that you know is dangerous for oh, your I heart. Feel like I, <laughs> I mean, don't you relate to that? I feel like it's been so many times in my life where I move toward the dangerous thing, even though there's a part of me that's like, well, this is not going to end well, and I do it anyway. I, You know, I think that there is something like, I don't know, like I kind of, I think that on the one hand, completely understanding somebody is sort of like what you think you're trying to do when you're in partnership with, with them. is like you're trying to understand why they do the things they do. That you're trying to understand how you can best take care of them. You're trying to understand their past. But I think if you really feel like you totally understand somebody, it's basically the death of loving them. You know, I don't think – for one, I don't think a person can totally understand another person. I don't think a person can totally understand themselves. It's not about totality. But I think that it's easy when you're seeing somebody every day to start to think that you know exactly what they're going to do. You know exactly what they're going to say in any given situation. You like – you know their habits. You know them in and out. And you, it starts to create this false feeling that you know them completely. And I think that that's – you know, you don't need to be writing a biography of your like very complicated – dead wife in order to like learn things you should know about about your partner or about your ex-partner or something like this. I think that's like a pretty like human experience. And, and, but also like, we're sort of like when you're in love with somebody, you're drawn toward these, like you, there's a part of you that is trying to figure every single thing out about them and wants to kind of endlessly sort of close the gap. Like I think love can kind of motivate a person to do that, but it's, if you actually indulge it to its full extent, it will be the death of your relationship or like the death of at least some part of it or some version of it or something, or it just 
maybe not the death, but like it's destructive, you know, mm. it's like, yeah, this need to know somebody else is both like constructive and destructive. So just the beginning of how you capture the infatuation was so powerful mm. and it felt like stepping back into my own time and I, I hadn't read anything that had really conjured those feelings in that way before. Of being like overpowered by yes. like your and, desire and for somebody? and that feeling like my feet are moving towards someone mm-hmm. and there is nothing, no one, nowhere that will stop this inevitability and the chips will fall as they may. Yeah. And it also feels like you created a character that – was magnetic in that way to so many people. And I guess I could just talk about what I think about your character (laughs) for a long time. But X has multiple identities, and Mm -hmm. I think it's okay that we we talk about that. Yeah, I think that's like in there from the beginning. Yes. Can you just share, was that fun? Do you know people like that? There's, There's such a power we might say there's an element of mental illness there or not but it's the manipulation yeah is something that I found so interesting and to have someone be drawn to someone who's manipulative in this way yeah I have so many different things to say I'm not sure exactly what what avenue to go down but I think that maybe that was another reason why the history had to be rewritten is that I wanted a woman to be able to like or just a feminine person in general to be able to like have that kind of magnetism and sort of power over another person. Cause I think we really only ever see it between men and women, you know, like that kind of like almost like submitting to someone else's like vision or power over you. I mean, I will say like, I I'm, I'm glad that you feel like the section about the falling in love and the like being like hurt. The, the author of the book, very abruptly ends a marriage to be with this mysterious person that she barely, barely knows. She just, you know, just kind of is, feels completely like it's just inevitable and I, there's nothing I can do about it. And this is just like what's happening in my life. It's like being, you know, like hit by a tornado or something. And it was important to me to get that right. Even though like, I feel like when you see a friend go through something like that, or you go through something like that yourself, it's like, it can feel completely crazy and nonsensical and also I think from the inside, it feels like the most logical thing usually. And it's really hard to like get that across. Like in life, I don't mean in fiction. I feel like (laughs) to like convince your friends, like, I know I'm behaving like I'm insane, but I promise I'm not insane. This is like actually the right thing for me. And I think it both, it's like, even though we see the kind of the complications in their relationship and we see the whole thing inside and out, I think it was the right thing for her. You know, I'm not, I don't like, I don't feel like. Definitely. I felt you know, that was... There was just no other way that she was going to be able to live her life honestly. She could have stayed in the marriage and just would have always been like, what if, what if, what if. But also if he'd read her letters, yeah. she may not have... I think it's just so interesting, the accumulation of experiences in a relationship mm-hmm. can throw something over the edge to allow yeah. a gap. And I feel that, you know, the fear is like, what can I do so there's never that gap for anyone else to enter Right. But the other person you love and you can't control that. No. I do think there are like these almost like one-way gates in relationships that we don't always realize we're passing through. And I don't think there's any way to get out of that if you spend years with someone that like something you do or don't do like can't ever be undone. And there's sometimes where it's like, oh, okay, like you forgive your partner for doing this thing or you 
decide to kind of get through it as a couple. But I think there's some moments and the thing that you're alluding to is like the, the author of the book had written all these letters to her husband and before they got married. And then she gives them to him when she's right after they get married or right when they get engaged or something. And she's like, to her, it's a huge deal. She like, can't believe she's giving over this like part of herself from before they were committed. And it, you know, in her head, she had all this kind of, she needed him to acknowledge the version of herself that fell in love with him. She just needed him to like see it completely. And she felt like that the letters like kind of represented that. And then he kind of like skims the letters and doesn't really read them and doesn't see it as a big deal. And I think that that kind of illustrates, there's nothing wrong with him not taking the letters seriously. Like, it's not like he's a bad person for not caring about that, but it does, it breaks the illusion that she has of him. Like she, because the person that she fell in love with would care about those letters. Mm -hmm. So she, there's like a, the vision that she had of this man and the man that actually exists, they don't line up. And so then it's really hard for her to like remain close to him, you know, or recover from it really. And really it's like an ego blow too, because I think she, she wants to be acknowledged as having had this passion or something into him. It's like, Oh, that's actually not a big deal to me, you know? And yeah. So she kind of can't recover from it. And that's, yeah, that's part of like what creates the, the moment where she falls in love with this other person. I think though that like, there's something I've been thinking about with relationships with really complicated, intelligent, powerful people, which is that often the person who's maybe weaker or more like supplicant in a relationship like that, they'll get both good and bad things from it. Like, I think this is maybe like a, a little loaded because I don't think it's, this is always true in like every abusive relationship, but I think in a lot of like abusive relationships, the person that's being abused is, is getting more than abuse. They're getting some sort of vision of of themselves for whatever reason, for whatever to whatever effect that it is valuable. And I think you end up just deciding, well, you know, like the, all these these other things is sort of the cost of this person who I view as very powerful seeing me as like worth their time, you know. And so I think that's what the <laughs> that's what the kind of relationship at the center of the book really is. And I don't think that it's it's all bad, you know, and I don't think it's No, I you know, don't get that sense. It just I don't think I've ever been in a relationship with someone like X, but I don't think I have really either. No, it's more like but, an, an exaggeration of things. Completely. It's definitely an exaggeration. But you could but I can recognize a dynamic mm -hmm. that I feel like I've been I'm like oh you've seen that in other people you've experienced maybe like versions of it yourself definitely like different moments yeah I mean I think in general like I have to like with books take something I know a little bit about and like exaggerate or manipulate it or like change the lighting or change the scale in order to write about it and it's because I'm like I'm curious about it I'm curious about what draws people towards each other and what are the like kind of positive and maybe more destructive aspects of something like love. And so it's like, well, let me come up with the most extreme examples and then like write about that so that I can kind of understand the the quieter, more subtle examples that exist in most people's lives, you know. Once people read the book, they'll understand how layered and complicated it is. So it's it it's hard to dive into one thing. I mean, as we read the book, there are images throughout that mm -hmm. are so beautiful. And I wondered if you had created some of them yourself. Some of them are just legit pictures of the people that are being written about. And a lot of them are like found. And some of them I commissioned 
Alex Murdo, who did the cover also, he in, ended up later doing, is like, I didn't know he was going to do the cover or not, but he did the, in, he did some of the, I commissioned some images from him and I made some things myself. And then, yeah, a lot of, a lot of the like vintage sort of photos in originally the very beginning of working the book and realizing I wanted photos. I was like, I want to somehow, even though I'm not a visual artist, create these pictures that will look vintage and either and use friends of mine or myself in the images to like represent the different characters in because that as I was reading it I was peering at the images to to work out if they were you and I was really like, one of them is and I was like Whoa. My and my dad's in there and my mom's in there oh oh well you'll have to show me later which <laughs> because I just thought they were so beautiful and it is like an experimental art piece, the whole novel. Thanks. I mean, I like the book itself is, is a book. Do you know what I mean? Like the, the book is, well, there's a, there's a fake copyright page in there and there's like a fake like title page. And then there's like fake end notes and real end notes. And yeah, I wanted there to be a book inside of the book. You just talked about how hard it is to devote time to those you love while immersed in something so intense as this mm -hmm. story. And I guess I talk to so many writers and I read their books and I'm like, oh, yeah, I can see how they did that. But this feels like it's a world mm -hmm. building. It's not just, you know, there's a character in my head with their friends, you know, doing things. So for whatever reason, I'm feeling like this would have been a lot harder to break the fourth wall out of, you know, and enter your own life. Like how long was this process? I started like taking notes and thinking about it, I think in early 2017. And I kind of slowly, I, and then I wrote Pew like in the middle of it. Like I think I was, I was cheating on the idea of this book with a much different book. This book takes place over, I mean, arguably like a hundred years, but more intensely, maybe like 30 years. And then um, obviously has a bunch of different characters and timelines. And yeah, I did have to kind of like, keep track of when was all these when were like all these people FBI, born Wallet. the FBI mm. the wall just like a kind of yeah there was a lot of like my office at the time was like lots of notes and things on the wall and sort of like trying to as much as I ever could turn the kind of document into something visual that I could see sort of moving through time lots of timelines lots of like I mean that's where I think the images really helped too is like it helped me kind of give a face to a name or something or like it kind of like can keep track of character a little bit better if you have like a visual representation of them like looking at you on your desk and so that was like a totally different exercise of like the narrative itself was contained within a week and it was like a almost more like an essay or something completely self-contained I worked on it totally differently than I worked on this book I used to be very like rigid about I have to like wake up and immediately start working before I think about anything too much and like I was very kind of tense around work. <laughs> and I think in the last year or so, I like life circumstances have changed and I've changed and I just don't view writing in that way anymore. And I think I would hear it like in other interviews with other authors, writers I really admire who didn't seem to have a huge chip on their shoulder, didn't seem to be like suffering. Do you know what I mean? Not that I was ever really suffering because I always, I like really like writing. I really enjoy the process of it. And so I think there's something almost like greedy about like, even if I'm living with somebody or like with a bunch of people being like, don't talk to me between when I wake up and 1 p.m. Don't ever say anything to me, you know? And now I don't, I'm just not like that. 
And I think some of that is just age. Maybe some of it is like realizing that the work isn't better if you're a huge pain in the ass, you know? I love that philosophy, isn't it? Maybe there is something about growing up and working out how you want life to be. There's a place where you, we kind of work out that how you live your life with friends, having dinner is your life. That's your life. Exactly. I think especially like I see a lot of writers and artists really suffer when they think of themselves as like the originators of something. And like I, one of the most unhappy writers I know who is also one of the most talented is tortured by the idea that nobody understands his work the way that he wishes they did. And I think a lot of that could be alleviated if you just understand that it's not your work. It's just not your work. Like it's all the things that you've read. It's the things you've experienced. You're not the originator of the world around you. You're kind of reflecting the thing that you're in. And so if you don't carry around the burden of needing to be acknowledged in the way that you think you should be acknowledged, you can kind of be open to the fact that, oh, I'm I'm just like a part of people that are making things, that are reflecting things back at each other. Things are coming to you that you don't have any control over and you're just reorganizing and reflecting them back. You know, <laughs> I feel like we just got some like very deep psychological advice that will change many artists' lives just now. Oh, well, I hope so. Well, a huge part of the book, too, is set within the New York art scene, mm-hmm. which then, you know, collides with music and mm-hmm. this period of time that I think now we romanticize very much, you know, the 80s, 90s. Yeah of New York, but it just, it made me think about artists and, but just more conceptual art and how X has this moment where she meets a gallerist and she has this ability to just make people think she's important without knowing who she is. Yeah. And she kind of attacks the work in the gallery, but with such and it's such a a knowledge base of art that the gallerist is kind of like, oh my God, like everything this woman's saying is right. And it just made me realize how subjective art is, but also how value is created from these strange objects. And you captured that. Do you go to art shows all the time and is that a part of your not really absorbing the world? I mean, it kind like I was like really close to going to grad school for visual art for sculpture. I came here. I came to New York, and I wanted to write about the art scene. I was like, "This is the perfect." And like, I love writing. I love visual art, and I will write about visual art. And that's how I will like marry these two competing interests. You know, I my exposure to visual art was in this amazing like warm environment where like I had incredible teachers at the school I went to. And then going to museums, growing up, just going to museums with my family. And I didn't understand the gallery world. And I had heard about it a little bit. I knew about these things, but I didn't, I had never seen it. And I had never felt how like withering the look from like a gallerist that doesn't want to pay any attention to you can feel, you know, just like, or doesn't even want you in the space. Don't, even they don't exactly. No one else. Your outfit is all wrong, and you don't know the proper lingo, and you just look stupid in this. You don't have like the. You don't have the thing, you know. And so, like I, so I quickly abandoned this project. I did. I was like, you know what? I'm not 
I'm just going to not think about art for a while. What's funny about the art world to me now is just that like the, it only is really for the wealthy and it's all speculation. It's basically like art and the stock market together. However, there are lots of like interesting artists that are alive that like make incredible bizarre stuff because there's always going to be weirdos out there making bizarre wonderful stuff and then it gets valued in a certain way and they have to enter this thing and it's like can you kind of tread water do your thing not be bothered by it and continue to exist it like while this kind of ferocious strange thing is going on around you i'm just so glad that you're re-entering that art world and writing about it mm. obviously in this book but with the experience of finding it so intimidating in the beginning. Yeah. I found that. I wanted to do visual arts as well at university and then came to New York and went to galleries because I yeah. thought, you know, I was studying upstate and then would come down and I had no idea a, a weekend this. in New York. Yeah. And luckily I had an amazing teacher who took us inside to meet her artist friends and it was like the best weekend I've had in my whole life. And then I started going to the galleries. Yeah. And the freeze out was so strong that it shut it, the same feeling. I was like, this is not the world for me. I don't, I'm from Australia. I don't have an uncle who yeah. has a building named after him, <laughs> you know, in some institution. I just had, was so freaked out by it. Yeah. Gaining access to a world like that is really, you either have to be, completely invited in or you have to be so weird that you don't even notice that you haven't been invited in and I think it's usually w one or the other and then some people are all like x you know, like very premeditated yes to watch and learn how a scene works yeah and also it's such a mystery in the book and everyone should discover that for themselves but there is this line which relates to exactly what you're talking about and it is I considered how the revelation of X's birthplace changed the meaning of her work. I had never fully understood why my wife's art had earned her as much recognition and money as it had, but seeing it in the light of her escape, boom, 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 each piece seemed more interesting, more folded with meaning and complication. There's something really vulnerable about that. Like, I think I have, like, I have sometimes had a resistance to talking about, like, growing up in Mississippi or... Like, especially when I was younger, I didn't want people to like read my work as with like knowing things about like my personal life or something like this, because I think it does change the meaning of, of your, of your work. But also there's like, I think that's, that's can be a really beautiful thing about it. And it's, it's like, it's, it's generous to give, to give people like a complete picture of you or like a somewhat complete picture of you, you know, or like of where you're from or something like this. I don't know, like, when I remember when I was, like, you know, maybe had just gotten to New York and I was, like, 22 and I didn't, it's, like, on the one hand, like, being Southern made me different and that's, like, everybody wants something that distinguishes them from other people and gives them a perspective that's not just, like, a carbon copy of everyone else's, but of everyone else's perspective. I mean, like, there's a bigger kind of political reason why we don't know where X is from, why she had to, like, keep that a secret, but I think underneath that there's also like just a part of her that wants to control the narrative and wants to control how she's seen and she doesn't want people to know too much about her because that will degrade some of the myth around her you know and I think it's more powerful to be mythic than it is to be specific which is also why she never wanted 
a biography mm-hmm. written about her mm-hmm. in her lifetime or afterwards. Although arguably, and I, I know that's like, that's in the book. That's the, yeah. But like, she may have been saying she didn't want anybody to write a biography of her because she desperately wanted somebody to write a biography of her, you know? And I think like, I don't know which is which is which. I don't like, I don't know. I don't pretend to like know everything about a character just because I came up with them, you know? I love that. She does live so fully. These, It's a crazy book. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. Oh, my gosh. Okay. What lights you up? Ah, uh, breakfast. I yes. love breakfast so much. I love like – I feel like I've – I used to work so much like first thing in the morning and now I'm like – because I love the morning. I think like – I think really clearly in the morning and like I, I love the morning and now I spend the, my mornings totally different. Reading in bed first thing in the morning I think is the most glamorous – experience a person can have if we're talking about my person so i like i read first thing in the morning in bed every day now and i love it make coffee or tea to come yeah. back to bed yes like yes that. we make the coffee we give back in bed it's wonderful that's what lights me up <laughs> that is the best answer thank you so yeah. much thank you so I much love, i'm so glad to be back i love your book Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Olivia Allmeyer is the marketing and editorial consultant. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. Andre Rodofsky wrote the theme music. See you in two weeks. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.